are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is distributed by Glassbox Media and is part of the Crawlspace Media family. Welcome back to True Crime Twins. I'm Chloe. And I'm Melina. Thank you so much for listening to another episode where we tell you a crime story using our criminological and medical education and experience. This episode, I talked about the murder of Joan Webster with her sister-in-law, Eve Carson, who has written books about this case. She knows it inside and out, and she is more than willing to challenge preconceived assumptions, and she seems just very devoted to the truth. Joan Webster was a 25-year-old graduate student at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when she disappeared from Logan Airport in Boston. She had just visited home in New Jersey for Thanksgiving break and was returning to Massachusetts to continue her studies. Joan was seen at the baggage carousel. She waved to acquaintances that she had recognized. She was last seen trying to get a taxi. She was due back to her residence, but never arrived. She wasn't reported missing until several days later when her absence was noticed. Joan's remains were found in 1991. They were skeletal. They were stripped of all clothing, except for a few pieces of jewelry. She had distinct head trauma, which was determined to be the cause of death. No arrests have been made in this case, and it remains unsolved. Eve was married to Joan Webster's brother. And she spent a lot of time with various members of the family. She references a letter several times in this interview that you're about to hear. And she doesn't want to go in much detail about this letter. I know that it might be a subject of curiosity to our listeners. It is to us too, trust me. But she is not at liberty to discuss the specific details of the letter, only that it details that a member of the Webster family was accused of committing a felony. Joan Webster was a very bright, very enthusiastic, very bubbly person. I honestly did not know anyone who didn't just absolutely love her. She attended Syracuse University in her undergrad years in interior design. I still am contacted by some of those individuals that knew her in earlier years. She went on to Harvard Graduate School again very high grades, very dedicated to her school. She was a hall proctor. She just was an incredibly caring and giving person. It's hard, and it was hard at the time, to fathom that anyone could have wanted to hurt Joan. And I think that's why it was so easy for so many people to accept the idea that This was a random act. She was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Today, after going through records, I don't believe that's the case at all. In between when she graduated from Syracuse and went to Harvard, she worked for a period of time for Skidmore, Owings and Merrill in uh, New York City and had several credentials, you know, on her resume. She had just done an outstanding job. So she was expanding her potential. She went into what was uh, a three-year program at Harvard, had about a year and a half under her belt when she disappeared. 
she certainly was a very good student based on her college enrollment. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, she had given a presentation right before she left for Thanksgiving break that year and received very high marks on it. So she was definitely a dedicated student. Did she like living in Cambridge, Boston area? I think so. Uh, She really loved New York. I think probably ultimately she would have gone back to the New York area, but she loved it at Harvard and had a lot of friends there. She had committed not to become involved deeply in a relationship at that time until she finished her degree. She was courted, uh, so to speak, by, you know, a certain number of young men outstanding young men who definitely would have loved to have been more committed in a relationship, but she wanted to finish her her degree first. Yeah, she had a bright future ahead of her. She really did. So she is your sister-in-law, is that right? I was married to her brother and was the only non-blood relative that was part of the immediate family when all of this happened and through all of the years following. My information at the time all came from the family, from authorities. Certainly, when you experience something like this, you trust people that you believe are really looking for the truthful answers, looking for justice, trying to find her. And uh, so the information that I had that I trusted was from the people who should have been most responsible for wanting to find the truthful answers. Unfortunately, I I learned very differently when I actually got into source documents that that wasn't necessarily the case. As time has gone on and different experiences I've had over the years, it really began to bother me. There are a couple key factors that really made me want to jump into Joan's case and really get to the rightful answers. This is an unresolved case. It's even though there was a lot of speculation out there and people presumed uh, that they were putting forward were the correct answers, they were not. And knowingly so. They, there were factors in there that they absolutely knew that the scenario they were promoting was false. She was last seen first by her parents at Newark Airport that day as she boarded a flight to Logan Airport in Boston. The flight departed at 2135 hours on December 28th. She was supposed to go straight to her dorm room, but never arrived. That all came from her initial missing persons report. Is that all accurate? The date that she took the flight was November 28th. This was following Thanksgiving weekend. It was the Saturday night of Thanksgiving. Based on what your in-laws have said, what were the accounts of Joan's behavior? Was everything as normal? Everything and also personal accounts. They attended two family gatherings, uh, family and friends in Glenridge, New Jersey, before they took Joan to the airport. And, uh, Joan was her normal self, very bubbly, very enthusiastic. Things were going well at school. She was very upbeat. There was nothing that uh, would have indicated that there was some sort of trouble or turmoil going on with her life. Things were going extremely well. The story that kind of came out afterward was that she had presented or she went back to school early to work on a class project, which really was inaccurate because she had presented the project before she went home for Thanksgiving break. When she initially was known to be missing, that was officially reported by her mother. Is that correct? 
it was three days before anyone indicated that Joan was missing. A classmate of hers called the home in New Jersey to see if Joan was still home, if she was sick, because she hadn't returned to classes. There were notes tacked up on her door. No one had seen her. So it was three days, three very critical days before people even realized she was missing. At that point, Eleanor Webster, Joan's mother, who also was known by Terry, went to file a report with the police. At the same time, her sister, Anne, who also lived in Boston, filed a report with the Harvard campus police. I think there would be a lot of things that are different today if that had happened. Today, we have cameras everywhere. People have cell phones. I don't know that people could have done or put forward the things that they did in today's environment. I hope that's not the case. But yeah, there are critical factors. And really, as I research this case, and I've been digging out records for 15 years, I know this case inside and out now. And unfortunately, there were a lot of gaps in the things that I was told at the time. You really have to take a look at the very minute details of what was really happening the climate in Boston. I mean, I researched a lot of different areas to get an understanding of just why this case has never been resolved. The biggest factor why it hasn't been resolved is in looking back into Boston's history. That was a very dysfunctional period in law enforcement. There were issues with the FBI. There were issues with the district attorney's offices with the Massachusetts State Police, there was a lot of corruption. And you took three primary groups looking into this that all had those problems existing. Today, the decision to really take a close look at this case rests with a single individual in the Essex County District Attorney's Office. And he himself has stated that he knows the former prosecutor and doesn't want to focus on him. I found that that was exactly the area that needed to be explored to really understand this case and simplify it. It was a, a very sensational case at the time. This was highly publicized. There are hundreds of articles. It was sensational. A lot of kind of wild and crazy things were put forward. The thing they finally settled on was a boat theory, claiming a man had taken Joan on his boat, hit her in the head with a whiskey bottle, and dumped her in the ocean. That's not what happened. Through research, I've learned that that boat didn't even exist when Joan disappeared. The boat had been sunk four months before she disappeared. She was not found in Boston Harbor. Uh, she was found buried more than 30 miles away north of uh, Boston in a town called Hamilton. So the pieces just didn't add up. At the time, though, the information that I received really all, always focused on that principally, uh, that she was murdered by this man on this boat and dumped in Boston Harbor. And of course, it stretched on for so many years, became very sensational. It was entangled with another case that was completely unrelated except that it focused on this same individual. I studied in depth what happened in that case and found some very serious problems, uh, malfeasance through the system, lawyers, the police officers. It, it just 
the dirtiest thing I've ever seen. And to think that, you know, they would try and tie these cases together and make this man out as the villain. And he was no saint. I mean, he wasn't an angel by any stretch of the imagination. He had issues. So he was vulnerable to accusations. But what took place by our judicial system and by law enforcement was completely corrupt. It, It really was not an earnest effort to find resolve for either the other victim in the entangled case or for Joan. So I'm looking at the Massachusetts government page devoted to Joan Webster, and the final paragraph states the following, and I just wanted to see if you agree with this. Through the combined effort of the Suffolk District Attorney's Office and the report of imprisoned inmates bragging, it was learned that Joan had been raped and hit over the head. Joan's body was found in April 1990 in a shallow grave in a wooded area in Hamilton, Massachusetts. Her skull showed trauma with a blunt instrument. While her case has never been prosecuted because of scanty witness information, her family believes that the murderer was convicted in another murder case. I find that very interesting. You said you found that on the Massachusetts government website? Yes, it's mass.gov, and it's through the Massachusetts Office for Victims Assistance. That statement was written by Eleanor Webster. That article is one that I previewed before she submitted it to Parents of Murdered Children. You will also find that on their website. They have murder walls with victims' names. Joan is on Murder Wall 1, Panel 1. I think that aligns with what they were promoting. They being? Her parents, George and Eleanor Webster. One of the most disturbing things that I learned, and it was one of the final pieces I was able to get, was an eyewitness account of Joan. She was seen at Logan Airport, and a composite was made of that individual. The description of that man is not at all. That does not describe the man that they were accusing of murdering Joan. He was a much smaller man in stature, and was able to maneuver Joan to a different vehicle that left Logan Airport. And that's technically when Joan really disappeared. The way the story was promoted was that after getting her luggage at the carousel, she vanished. No one saw her. That's not true. There was an eyewitness account. And what disturbs me about that, that I was able to confirm through records, was that that lead was in the hands of George and Eleanor Webster. So it was the Websters who, with law enforcement, with a prosecutor, implicated a man that they knew did not commit the crime. Why do you think someone made up a false story? Well, I hate to use certain terms, but this really reflects a cover-up. Obviously, there was something that the Websters did not want known about what really happened to Joan, and therefore implicated a man and claimed this was a random act, that she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. George Webster was the one that reinforced that Joan went back early from Thanksgiving break because she was going to work on a class project when she had already presented that project. There were very subtle things that, as I went through this, you know, tried to go back in time to kind of relive that experience, 
certain things just didn't make sense to me, but you certainly can't judge someone and how they respond to grief. The one thing that I don't believe someone who is earnestly looking for their daughter or for what happened is to conceal leads and conceal facts. And the Websters did. My assumption, my trust was in people that I presumed to have an earnest interest in seeing justice prevail. Many years later, though, I did have an experience with the family that was extremely distressing. I discovered a letter and went to proper support individuals to try and get help. That letter alleged that a member of the Webster family had committed a felony if it were taken in the worst intent of that letter. The letter was written in such a way that it wasn't clearly defined, and I didn't want to jump to conclusions. But in going back through and finding other documents that support it, other corroborating evidence, and seeing what happened and how I was misled during Joan's investigation, that that certainly could shed light on motive for Joan's murder. Can you tell me more about that final eyewitness account who was able to describe the man to the sketch artist? Okay. The man's name was Fenton Allen Moore. He was a cab driver for Town Taxi. He actually, Joan had actually engaged his taxi and had her luggage in the trunk of his car. Before he was ready to take her to Cambridge, she turned and advised him that a man was with her. Mr. Moore tried to load the man's luggage into his trunk. It was extremely heavy, and the man got uh, argumentative and exchanged words with the cabbie that he didn't like how the luggage was being loaded, turned to Joan and said, we don't want to take this cab. The cab driver removed Joan's bag from the trunk and the man and Joan got into a vehicle in the line, a different vehicle, a blue car and left Logan Airport. The description, there are a couple things in it that really catch my attention. The description of his behavior, very demanding, that catches my attention. The description of his stature catches my attention. The description of his attire, he wore a dark overcoat. That's not the kind of attire that a cab driver or a student or a random perp would be wearing. That's something that a professional man would be wearing. The one distracting feature that was in the description was that the man was bearded. I kind of broke down the description into things that you could camouflage or you could change the appearance of certain things. You could not change the appearance of other things. The stature was extremely critical. The man was under six foot tall, weighed about 160 pounds and the man that they accused was over 6'2 and over 200 pounds. Those don't jive. Those do not jive at all. Something you could disguise would be a beard. You could add a beard. You could add glasses. You could add different things. But you're not going to be able to disguise 
the stature of the man, the race of the man, certainly what he wore stood out to me as well. So for Joan to have switched vehicles with this individual, she knew who that person was and put trust in him. I want to talk about the discovery of her remains, which is a difficult subject, I know. But what her remains and the evidence left behind tells us and doesn't tell us. I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with the uh, Hamilton area. It's very remote. I've been back in there since multiple times. This is a very heavily wooded area and not many people live out there. Even still today, there are few houses. There was a woman who did live out there. Her house was on the top of a, a bluff overlooking a lake or pond area. She had gone out, this was in April of 1990, to walk her dog. She was walking in a lower area of her property, and there was something obstructing the drainage ditch under her driveway. As she got closer and reached down for it, she did and was able to identify it was a human skull. At that point, she called the police. The police arrived, cordoned off the area, there was a lot of activity there. They brought in search teams. They divided the whole area up into grids and searched for several days, not finding anything that really related to Joan or the case, uh, as it turned out. There were three police officers who were out there. They were just really getting ready to give up on the search. And one of the officers reached down and pulled out, he had reached into a decomposed log and pulled out a vertebrae. At that point, they had found the grave site and 95% of her skeletal remains were there. The things that I notice about the report and the condition that they found her, Joan had been stripped of all clothing, completely stripped, and none of her clothing was in the area. She had a two inch by four inch hole in the right side of her head. So whatever she was struck with uh, really took out the entire right side of her head. And certainly she died instantly. She would have bled out very quickly. There were two jewelry items that were still on the skeletal remains, kind of a generic neck chain and gold ring with a semi-precious stone. She had identifiable jewelry with her. Those pieces were missing and never recovered. A signet ring and a charm bracelet that was very unique. She had been discarded in a black plastic trash bag. That suggests to me that she had been murdered elsewhere, which certainly I believe is the case because this is a very dark, very remote area. It would have been difficult to commit the murder there. They probably required a trash bag to contain the blood and transport her then to a very hard to find area. She was put in an area that was kind of a shallow basin, an area that floods on a regular basis and covered with cut logs. One of the police officers that I spoke with, with the Hamilton uh, Police Department, who was part of the recovery, was that power groups went out there the power company, and they would occasionally thin out the trees so there would be cut logs readily there. 
a very distinguishable thing was that there were two layers of logs. The decomposition of the first layer was very different. So someone went back there later in time and covered that site again. Presumably, people that were involved or someone that was involved had visited the site of disposal several times to maintain it, to further hide the body. At least a second time, because there were two distinct layers of logs over the grave. Were investigators ever able to develop a criminal profile? When authorities kind of reconvened after Joan's remains were found and she was identified, there were a segment of authorities, professionals, who did not believe that Leonard Paradiso, the man they accused for so many years, was responsible for the crime. There was another group that maintained he was the person responsible for the crime, along with the Websters. The Websters maintained that as well. I don't have a report that necessarily would show a profile of who they were looking for after Jones' remains were found. There was a profile done in the early days of the case, and the profile, it didn't necessarily fit Leonard Paradiso. It was made to fit Leonard Paradiso. It kind of qualified certain things, sexually aggressive. According to the former prosecutor, Leonard Paradiso was a serial killer. He raped and murdered women, got away with it. I found no evidence that he ever murdered anyone. Did he have some issues? Yes, he had issues. He had a rap sheet. And just from personal contacts I've made out there, he could have been abusive. I didn't find specific information that he ever actually raped anyone. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Can you tell me about your opinion and the rest of the Webster family's opinions about the Essex County District Attorney's Office? The Essex County District Attorney's Office was the third office to handle this case. That was one very unusual aspect. This case was handled first by Middlesex County, which covers Cambridge or Harvard. The second case, and it got flipped over, which was very suspect, it got flipped over to Suffolk County, which was when former prosecutor really conducted the investigation and pursued Paradiso. When Jones' remains were found, it was then flipped over to Essex County. So they are the final office. They're the custodians of the case. They communicated with the Websters. One thing I found very interesting was that a former officer with Hamilton said that the Websters refused or declined to have, at that time, there were crime shows, missing people shows, missing persons shows that were becoming more prevalent on TV, but they declined that assistance. The Websters held a press conference after Jones' remains were found and continued to insist that Leonard Paradiso had murdered Joan, despite the discovery in an entirely different area that made no sense, and despite the finding of a court that the boat did not exist, so their crime scene didn't exist either. That made it that much more disturbing to discover the lead that they did have in the early days of the case, and they ignored or they suppressed. The authorities suppressed the lead of the eyewitness, as did the Websters. 
I know it makes me a little bit of a villain to speak out in regards to the Webster family. No one wants to think that a family, especially one that has a very strong public persona, could have any involvement in any way in their daughter's murder. However, their intent was very clear that they did not want people knowing what happened. And that's very concerning to me. I have daughters that are impacted by this case. This is a very patriarchal family. And as I said, I discovered a letter that made allegations of a possible felony by a member of the Webster family. Whatever George Webster said is whatever the family abided by. They kind of march in lockstep. The description of the bearded man that the eyewitness gave is a much more accurate description of George Webster than it is of the man they accused. And one thing not publicly known was the fact that George Webster did travel that weekend, the same weekend that Joan took the flight back. So I have serious concerns on whether it's protecting George and family secrets. Certainly there are family secrets here. This is a very interesting family. The background of both George and Eleanor Webster, they both started their careers in intelligence. They were both members of the CIA. So this is a very skilled family. They are extremely intelligent. They are very capable of being secretive. I know there were certain things they would never talk about around me, certainly, and uh, never wanted to talk about what they did with the agency. George left the agency in 1955, and both of their daughters, both Anne, Joan's sister, and Joan were born in Dayton, Ohio, where George at that time worked for his father's company. He left that company, though, in a relatively short period of time and went back east and went to work for ITT, International Telephone and Telegraph, as an executive. He was the director, at the time I met him, he was the director of budgeting and planning for the Defense Department, for the Defense Group. And that particular group came under severe scrutiny in the U.S. Senate, in the Church Senate hearings, when they were looking at various activities of ITT, which George would have been right in the middle of. So was George the one being protected? Certainly, this family is very guarded and they are very image conscious, and certainly they would not like some of their secrets exposed. How long were you married into this family? 25 years. I have a lot of experience with them. As I said, some things kind of caught me off guard. It's not how I would respond to situations, but I never tried to make judgments on how someone responds to grief. And let me give you an example. The month following Joan's disappearance, we went back to New Jersey to spend Christmas with George and Eleanor and his sister Anne, and no one in the family cried. No one. I'm the only one who cried. Now, some people are very stoic. I would not use that as a marker against someone, but when you start to combine all the pieces, it's like that's not a typical response especially within the private moments within the family. They were always very stoic. They were very adamant that Paradiso had murdered Joan. I'll give you a second example. After Joan's remains were recovered, about a month after all the pathology was done, George had 
John cremated. That's against the law in Massachusetts. You do not cremate a body when there is still potential judicial activity. But they had the body cremated. I went back for the interment and did not go back. Throne's sister, many years of this tragedy. The only people that were graveside were myself and Steve, George and Eleanor, and the choir director. The following month, we all went to Nantucket and did go on that particular trip. And I learned years later that I was told one thing. My aunt's husband was told something else as to why they felt that Leonard Paradiso was guilty. I was told it's been too long. We can't really find the answers. My brother-in-law was told that Paradiso's girlfriend had a piece of Joan's jewelry. That was not true. I did find a similar statement made by the prosecutor to the FBI in FBI records. He claimed that one of Paradiso's girlfriends was photographed in Joan's bracelet. It's a very distinct bracelet. Have not been able to get my hands on that photograph. I don't know if it even truly existed with someone photographed in a bracelet, but it would have been very easy to at least get closer and identify. As it turned out, that woman testified in two different hearings, and she never had any of Joan's jewelry. What were your personal experiences like with George? For many years, it was a pretty fun family to be around. They were very engaging. They were very entertaining. George didn't like to be challenged, though, and I'm a very headstrong person. I can think for myself. If I disagreed with George on any particular topic, he would basically override it. I know that happened one year at Christmas time when they were at our home and Anne was going through a divorce. She had started dating another man and he was going through a divorce. I had two adolescent daughters and they had decided that they wanted the new boyfriend to come and spend the night and be a part of our Christmas. They told me that it was my choice to make. And I did not like the idea of him being there for Christmas or staying at the house. I didn't think it was a good example for my daughters. I did agree to host a brunch the next day before they were taking their flight back to Arizona so that people could meet each other. I wasn't totally opposed to that, but just wanted to make sure what kind of example was being set. When George arrived for that holiday weekend, he overrode me and they had the boyfriend there, they kind of told me as this guy was walking up the aisle, I was extremely upset. I learned to bite my tongue a lot, but they did not respect boundaries. George and Eleanor are now deceased, and I still see those qualities that they're going to abide by what the family dictated. It's a very secretive family. They project. I'm not a doctor. I'm not, uh, you know, a psychiatrist or anything like that to give any kind of diagnosis, but there are narcissistic qualities that are there in the family and they prevail today. I'll give you another example. I had recalled during the experience with Joan's disappearance, an extortion incident. There were actually multiple extortion incidents. This one in particular, though, was extremely distressing. The person had called the house and informed George that he knew where Joan was. He was using some kind of legal maneuvers to try and get reward, but without being charged with anything. And it was a very dramatic event. George and an FBI agent 
traveled with this extortionist across state lines to a bogus address he had given in Boston. He was interviewed by the Boston office of the FBI, and then he was released, no charges, which I found very unusual. Today, Joan's brother indicates that he doesn't know anything about any incident like that. He is documented on that denial, but that incident is very well documented, not only in FBI reports, but also in certain police reports that I was able to recover. How did he get to where she was? Do you think that he took a flight with her to Logan? I doubt that he was on the same flight, although he could have been sitting in a different section. There were two flights from Newark that arrived at Logan at maybe within a half hour or hour of each other. But George also had access on occasion to the corporate jets. And he was traveling that weekend, whether he stopped in Boston first and went on. Supposedly, he was in California. That would likely be a trip he would take on a corporate jet. So he would have had the means to be there. Is there any indication of what a motive might be? I think the letter that I discovered is reflective of behaviors in the family that are extremely concerning. And whether there's a direct correlation or not, I can't be 100% certain. I can't speak to Joan. I will say that when I found that letter and in speaking to my former brother-in-law, the man who was married to Joan's sister, Anne, he had experienced similar concerns. He didn't find a letter, but he noticed certain behaviors that were concerning to him of an abuse victim. And when he tried to discuss it with Anne, she wouldn't discuss it. Another incident I can describe is I know I was having difficulties, the adolescent years with my girls, and I'm a firm believer in boundaries, healthy guidelines. You know, if they were stepping out of line, I would put appropriate things in place, grounding them, taking away phone access or TV or whatever the case may be. Their father would come in constantly behind me and kind of undo it, making me out to be the bad guy. And I could remember having a discussion with him once that if his parents didn't ever discipline him, and he relayed a story without much detail that he said his father got so mad at him one time and hit him so hard it jammed a pencil in his eye and he had to go to the emergency room. So there are serious concerns. The control was definitely something that was obvious to me. But, you know, unless you're living in a constant environment of that control, I certainly don't fault people for wanting to be organized and meticulous. And I understand that. But when you are really manipulating people, that becomes a real problem. Can you tell me a little bit about the books you've authored? When I first started writing, I started writing based on the guidance of an abuse advocate who said, just write everything down that you can remember, that you can think of. It got very confusing. There was a lot of Joan in there. There was a lot of my experience. There were experiences I was having with my daughters that were concerning. Since that time, I've had the opportunity to speak with more people. I've had the opportunity to recover more documents, to work with a private investigator, to work with a lawyer out in the Boston area for a period. I've spoken with the district attorney, who is the custodian of Jones' case, and I've been able to really saturate these records. I mean, really go through them with a fine-tooth comb 
to plot out times, dates, who knew what, when. I've reviewed the case that was entangled with Joan's case to really see what all was taking place there. I started to work very hard to try and narrow the focus to Joan's case specifically. I've just released a book. It's just gone out called Simple, Safe, and Secret, the 1981 murder of Joan L. Webster. And I go through it step by step so people can kind of demystify what was a very baffling and sensational case at the time. You can see that there were deliberate things that were done that were counter to really finding truthful justice in the case. You can see the type of things that authorities can do to really derail things, to divert attention, to implicate people wrongfully. And you see the number of victims that come out of a situation like that. They didn't help anything. They may have felt justified that they were taking someone they considered a bad egg and gotten them off the streets. I have no objection to that for crimes that person actually committed. But when you start framing people for things that they did not commit and could not have committed, then all they're doing is leaving people vulnerable. There are other victims of what took place in this investigation. There are people that are still vulnerable today because what took place here was just the grossest miscarriage of justice you could possibly imagine. In the book that I've just released, there are documents included in that book so that people can see what I am looking at and why I'm coming to the conclusions that I am. I have also worked to build that website that I directed you to that I'm posting further documentation and kind of laying things out step by step so it becomes much clearer on what really took place. This was a cover-up. Whether someone can specifically identify, you know, what the motives are, motive is a lot more difficult to identify than intent. And the intent here was very clear, and that was to divert attention from a guilty culprit. Let me give you one final example of just how glaring these discrepancies were. Mr. Burke, who was the former prosecutor, published a book in 2008. That, combined with my own personal experience, was what prompted me to really dive into this case and recover records to see what was really going on, because there were a great many things that I knew were false in the book, in his book. He identified what at the time was the confidential source. The confidential source that he identified was a man that had done renovation work at Pier 7 in Boston, where the alleged murder took place on Paradiso's boat. And he claimed that this individual pointed out to him or informed him about a gun that Mr. Burke then claimed was used by Paradiso to force Joan onto this boat. When I went back through the records, this individual, he actually was working on the pier in 1980. So this was well before Joan disappeared. He was under federal investigation for embezzling government funds to do the renovation. By October of 1981, he was videotaped in Florida four days before Joan disappeared by the FBI, which was used in his trial. And this man went to prison for perjury. So Burke's claim that this man told him he recovered a gun or found a gun at that site in 1982 was completely false. I recovered as part of the records the 302 report interviewing this individual, 
and what his divers actually found in the water, and of course it would have been in 1980 when he was there and working, was a Mercedes. Now, I have no difficulty discriminating between a handheld firearm or a two-ton vehicle. But because no one had the access to the information, to the records, things were very dissected in all sorts of different files. Fortunately, as someone who was close to this at the time all of this was happening, I knew different places to look that perhaps other people did not. And the pieces all do start to fit together, that this was very deliberate. It was a deliberate storyline to kind of satisfy people's desire for justice, but it wasn't justice at all. It was a cover-up. Eve Carson's books on the Joan Webster case can be purchased on Amazon. They are titled Simple, Safe, and Secret, and Mommy's a Mole. She knows her stuff. She's clearly researched this extensively. And I just got the impression from her that she is a genuine advocate for Joan. I think she really cared about Joan. And it seems that a lot of people that have been looking into this in the past had some sort of motivation. For example, the investigator that was trying to connect Joan's murder and another murder to the same man, Paradiso, that just seemed to be a case of confirmation bias where he just really wanted his theory to be correct and despite conflicting evidence was going to drown on that ship. Some might think that because Eve is divorced from the Webster family, she might have animosity and that could bias her or influence her theories on this case. I obviously only spoke to her once, but that really wasn't the impression that I got. I felt that she was earnest in her efforts and that everything was very fact-based in her investigation. She had gotten advice from an abuse advocate who encouraged her to write down her experiences and everything just kind of started flowing from there. So I think that it really does come from just an honest raw place. And I think she probably just had a sense that something was really wrong. And once she started looking into it further, those feelings were confirmed. And I think some of the more compelling arguments that she made were that the boat that Paradiso allegedly killed Joan on wasn't even around in 1981. So that whole theory isn't even possible. Plus the fact that this whole theory is centered around her being disposed in water, and she was found on land. The condition of the body was interesting. It was unclothed and missing of most of her jewelry. The jewelry that was missing were apparently distinguishable and unique. She had a two by four inch, essentially a hole in the right side of her skull, which is indicative of a brutal bludgeoning. I wonder if there was any more damage to her other bones that could indicate what type of beating it was, if it was sort of methodical or not, like emotional or planned. It's disturbing that what she's come to discover is that with the fact that there's no real way that Paradiso could have done this, and yet the family was pushing Paradiso onto the public and making assertions that just weren't true, you can't disagree with her that it's strange that they're doing that they're pushing a false narrative and what other reason would they have to do this than to conceal 
to hide, to cover up what the truth really is. And I mean, it's their own daughter. It's very disturbing. Thank you for listening to another episode of True Crime Twins. We so appreciate your support. If you don't already, please subscribe to our show on your preferred podcast feed. We now are a weekly show, which is very exciting. So look forward and stay tuned to more content. If you enjoy our show, please give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can also follow us on social media at True Crime Twins Podcast on Instagram, at True Crime Twins on TikTok and Twitter. And if you'd like to email us, please do at truecrimetwinspodcast at gmail.com.